Good morning, Fellowship Greenville. So good to see you today. We are in the sixth message in an eight-part series in the Old Testament book of Judges. And of course, as you know, Judges is, is, uh, is kind of like Psalms. Like we love to spend a lot of devotional time in the book, don't we? Not really. Uh, it's not a book that we're that familiar with, but over the course of the last five weeks, I think we've had our eyes open to see how important this ancient book, this very disturbing book, really is. And we've looked at men like uh, Othniel and Ehud and Barak, uh, men that we don't really know that much about or never think about. And then we've looked at Gideon, and you know, he's the guy that puts the, ho- the Bibles in hotel rooms. And... Uh, and uh, We've looked at Jephthah and his distorted image of God that ultimately led him to offer his only child, his daughter, as a sacrifice to his canonized version of God, which is very disturbing. And this morning, we come to the best known of all the judges, and that is Samson, one of the all-time great heroes of the Bible. Now, I would guess that a majority of you, if you grew up with any kind of church background or done any kind of vacation Bible school thing when you were uh, young, you know something about Samson. And I'm guessing he looked something like a cross between Fabio and, uh, and a professional wrestler. That's just kind of how I, I picture him in, in my mind. And, uh, you know, he had a girlfriend named Delilah, and their story is one of the great lust stories of the Bible. We'll get to that next week. And uh, now, it, but before we started in Judges, um, if, I, if I were to have started by asking you the question, Samson, good guy or bad guy? Most of us would have said, good guy. Yeah, good guy. And that's why in children's Bible stories, Samson's always one of the best love characters. And um, in fact, he's pictured a number of different ways, like here, just typical Samson, you know, uh, hero of the Bible, or maybe something like, like this. Now, there's, there's a Samson for you right there. I mean, look, uh, you know, he's very macho, holding his uh, jaw, jawbone of a donkey. That was his chosen weapon of choice. And then uh, there's the big city greens version of Samson, you know, something like that, or a true superhero-looking Samson like this, which it's kind of odd to me because when he's breaking down those pillars, I, th- I think he, his eyes are, are out. But anyway, um, Samson was one of the strongest men who ever lived, one of the most colorful, to put it mildly, men who ever lived. And he tops the list in uh, children's Sunday school curriculum and children's Bibles. And um, yeah, from everything we've ever heard, Samson is a, is a good guy, really good guy. However, If you've been here from the beginning of the series, then you know pretty much every week I've kind of bashed Samson. I've told you Samson was not a good guy. I've told you that Samson was uh, the very worst of all the judges or deliverers that God raised up in Israel. I mean, his story is R-rated. He's violent, he's a sex addict, he's vindictive, he's sadistic, he disrespects his parents, definitely not a good role model for children. So this morning, It's Samson for big church. And the most obvious question we have to ask is if Samson is really is the man that I just described, then what what's he doing in the Bible? And and what's the point of his tragic story? And that's a great question, and we'll unpack it today. 
find your way in your Bibles to Judges chapter 13. Judges chapter 13 is where Samson's story begins. Judges 13, we'll start in verse 1, where we, where we read, And the people of Israel again did what was evil in the sight of the Lord. So the Lord gave them into the hands of the Philistines for 40 years. Samson's story begins with that downward spiral cycle that we've been seeing all through the book. The people of Israel sin against the Lord, but this time we're not told exactly what the specific sin is, and that's kind of odd. The people sin against Yahweh, then the Lord disciplines them, this time by giving them into the hands of the Philistines for 40 years, and that's the longest period of oppression found in the book of Judges. Now, just so you know, the Philistines lived along the Mediterranean coast of Israel, and you see their major cities there, Gaza, Ashkelon, Ashdod, Ekron, Joppa, you see those cities there. And uh, most scholars call the Philistines uh, sea people because they believe they, they were not native to the land, but they came in from the Aegean Sea area, and the word Philistine is what the, the Israelites call these highly advanced sea people, and it's why the land of Israel is sometimes called Palestine today. The word Palestine comes from Philistine, and when you say that, you're saying the land really doesn't belong to Israel. Anyway, we're told that the Philistines dominated Israel for 40 years, and actually they continue to dominate Israel until King David ultimately delivered Israel from their oppression. Now, I want you to notice something here in this downward spiral. It is pretty much broken down. The people sin, God disciplines them, but notice there's no repentance. They do not cry out to God in their distress. In other words, they have accepted their Philistine overlords and they're intermarrying with outsiders and they are dangerously close to being completely absorbed into this pagan culture. So Yahweh himself will act to deliver them from national annihilation because he has a predetermined purpose that his great plan of redemption for Israel for all humanity depends on Messiah Jesus, the ultimate deliverer coming through the nation of Israel. You, you follow me? See, their great sin here was not simply idolatry. Their great sin was that they were willingly casting aside their identity as God's specially chosen people, and Yahweh will not let that happen even if they don't care that it happens. Wow. All right, verse two. Now, today I'm gonna to read from the New Living Translation, and so you might wanna just sit back and listen, and I encourage you to try to picture what's happening uh, as if it was a made-for-TV movie, okay? And it's definitely not a Hallmark movie, but anyway, verse two. In those days, a man named Manoah from the tribe of Dan lived in the town of Zorah. His wife was unable to become pregnant, and they had no children. The angel of the Lord appeared to Manoah's wife and said, even though you have been unable to have children, you will soon become pregnant and give birth to a son. So be careful. You must not drink wine or any other alcoholic drink, nor eat any forbidden food. You will become pregnant and give birth to a son, and his hair must never be cut, for he will be dedicated to God as a Nazarite from birth, and he will begin to deliver Israel from the hands of the Philistines." 
the woman ran and told her husband, a man of God appeared to me and he looked like one of God's angels. I mean, he was terrifying to look at. And I didn't ask him where he was from and he didn't tell me his name, but he told me, you will become pregnant and give birth to a son. And he told me, you must not drink wine or any other alcoholic drink, nor eat any forbidden food, for your son will be dedicated to God as a Nazarite from the moment of his birth until the day of his death. A little foreshadowing there. Then Manoah prayed to the Lord and said, Lord, please let the man of God come back to us again and give us more instructions about this son who is to be born. And God answered Manoah's prayer, and the angel of God appeared once again to his wife, not to Manoah, to his wife. She was out sitting in a field, but her husband Manoah wasn't with her. So she quickly ran and told her husband, the man who appeared to me the other day, he's back, he's here again. So Manoah ran back with his wife and asked, are you the man who spoke to my wife the other day? Yes, he replied, I am. So Manoah asked him, when your words come true, what kinds of rules should govern this boy's life and work? And the angel of the Lord replied, did you not listen to your wife? I already told her, be sure to follow your wife's instructions, the instructions I gave her. She must not eat uh, she must not eat grapes or raisins, drink wine or any other alcoholic drink or eat any forbidden food. And then Manoah said to the angel, well, please stay here until we can prepare a young goat for you to eat. I'll stay, the angel of the Lord replied, but I will not eat anything. However, you may prepare a burnt offering as a sacrifice to the Lord. Manoah still hadn't realized who this was. It was the angel of the Lord. Then Manoah asked the angel of the Lord, what's your name? For when all this comes true, we certainly want to honor you. Why do you ask my name? The angel of the Lord replied. It's too wonderful for you to understand. Then Manoah took a young goat and a grain, and grain offering and offered it on a rock as a sacrifice to the Lord. And Manoah and his wife watched. And the Lord did an amazing thing. As the flames from the altar shot up towards the sky, the angel of the Lord ascended in the fire. And when Manoah and his wife saw this, they fell to their faces on the ground. And the angel did not appear to Manoah and his wife ever again. Manoah finally realized this was the angel of the Lord. And he said to his wife, we're going to die. I mean, we've seen God. And his wife said, you idiot. If the Lord were going to kill us, he wouldn't have accepted our burnt offering and grain offering. And he wouldn't have appeared to us and told us this wonderful thing and done all these miracles. And when her son was born, she named him Samson. And the Lord blessed him as he grew up. And the spirit of the Lord began to stir in him while he lived in Mahane Dan, which is located between the towns of Zorah and Eshtel. This is quite a story, quite a story. Nothing exactly like it in the Old Testament. I mean, for sure, Sarah, Abraham's wife, she had an angelic visitation announcing that she uh, would have baby Isaac in, their, in uh, their old age. Same kind of thing happens with Hannah, Judge Eli's wife in the book of 1 Samuel. Same thing happens to Elizabeth, uh, uh, the mother of John the baptizer. And then with Mary, the mother of Jesus, of course. But the whole dialogue between this unnamed mother and her husband Manoah and the angel of the Lord is nothing quite like it in the Old Testament, certainly not in the book of, of Judges. And basically, the angel tells these future parents that God has chosen their coming baby boy for a special mission in life. His manner of life was that he would be a Nazarite. So what, what's a Nazarite? Well, it's not somebody from Nazareth. 
You can read about it back in Numbers chapter 6. But a Nazarite was a man or a woman who made a vow to the Lord that for a certain period of time they would, number one, abstain from all grape products, wine, welches, raisins, that kind of thing. And that, that also included beer, grog, mead, or any alcohol product. Two, they would not cut their hair for the time of the, that the vow was in effect. And three, they wouldn't touch, a, touch or go near anything dead, human or animal. And really, that applied to all of Israel. And the purpose of the vow, get this, the purpose of the vow was that through self-discipline, they would focus on being in God's presence, living in God's presence and carry out God's mission in their life. A little bit like fasting, but much more intense. But the odd thing here is Samson does not choose this lifestyle. He doesn't choose this. It's chosen for him, verse 5. For he will be dedicated to God as a Nazarite from birth. That's his manner of life. Here's his mission in life. Verse 5. He will begin to rescue Israel from the Philistines. He will begin. You see that. He will begin to deliver Israel from the hands of the Philistines. In other words, God, who knows all things, God knew that Samson would not be Israel's ultimate deliverer. He knew that they would need a king for that task, and that king would be David, King David. But of course, of course, God also knew the kind of man that Samson was going to turn out to be. And that is, despite his miraculous angelic birth announcement, despite God setting him apart from before he was born to be a holy man, with a life mission to deliver Israel, despite having a decent home environment, but you gotta wonder because his mother named him after the Canaanite sun god. That's what Samson means, sun sun, or they might have called him Sonny. Uh, what, what is that all about? I mean, it's crazy, it's crazy. I'll talk a little bit more about that in a minute, but his upbringing was still much better than Jephthah's dysfunctional family background that we looked at last week. And despite the fact, verse 25, the Lord blessed him as he grew up, and despite the fact that the Spirit of the Lord began to stir, become active in his life, despite all of these advantages, Samson would not live up to all that God had called him to be. Now, to be sure, when we read here, what we read here in chapter 13 gets us all excited about Samson. I mean, his birth and his growing up years look very promising. And God blessed him and empowered him with his spirit. And, and that, that raises our hopes and expectations that maybe the Samson is the guy that we've been waiting for and looking for. But the storyteller is setting us up for a fall. Because in the very next verse, of the very next chapter... In fact, let's just read it this way. Just ignore the chapter division and read it like this. And the Spirit of the Lord began to stir in him while he lived in Mahanedan, which is located between the towns of Zorah and Eshtaol. Then Samson went down to Timnah, and one of the daughters of the Philistines caught his eye. Oh, Matthew, what are you saying here? As I like this commentator Lawson Younger puts it this way, he says, we're about to see that Israel's last hope is in a judge, a deliverer, who chases women instead of enemies and who avenges personal grievances rather than delivering his nation from oppression. 
You got to be kidding me. I mean, how can, how can this be? I mean, he, it's all downhill from here. He just didn't just go down to Timnah. He went down and kept going down. Now, I hear you, you, you know, because I, I, I wrestle with the same thing all, all this week. That, like, how can the spirit of the Lord be stirring in Samson and then literally in the next sentence, he traipses off to Timnah and ends up wanting to marry a Philistine woman, which is a direct violation of the commandment of God. Now, that's a good question. Now, here's the thing. To understand the spirit of the Lord in the Old Testament, you need to know that our Christian understanding of the Holy Spirit as a distinct person of the Trinity, that was not how people in the Old Testament thought about the spirit of God. No, they thought about the spirit of the Lord as simply an extension of the presence and power and authority of Yahweh. And in those days, the Spirit would come upon certain people to empower them to do certain things for a limited amount of time. And it's not even clear if the person always knew that the Spirit of the Lord was on them. So what we see here in Judges is that God occasionally empowers people to accomplish his work, often, listen, often despite their own selfish, cowardly, canaanized, foolish inclinations as we've seen in Gideon and Jephthah and now Samson. And the really disturbing thing to us is that that the presence of the Spirit seemed to have no effect on the moral character of the person. Let me say that one more time. The, the, The disturbing thing is that the presence of the Spirit seemed to have no effect, little to no effect on the moral character of the individual. Nevertheless, when God sees fit, he empowers certain people at certain times to accomplish his plans and purposes in spite of their ignorance or their depraved character flaws. All right, back to the the story. Chapter 14, verse one. Watch the movie in your mind. One day when Samson was in Timnah, one of the Philistine women caught his eye. And when he returned home, he told his father and mother, a young Philistine woman in Timnah caught my eye. I want to marry her. Get her for me. Yeah. Okay. His father and mother objected. Isn't there even one woman in our tribe or among all Israel you could marry? They said, why do you have to go to the pagan Philistines to find a wife? Now, again, this is much worse than breaking a Nazarite vow. This is a direct violation of Deuteronomy chapter 7, where God says, do not take spouses for your children from among your idolatrous neighbors. But Samson told his father, get her for me. She looks good to me. Now, here's the most important verse in the entire Samson story right here. His father and mother didn't realize that the Lord was at work in this, creating an opportunity to work against the Philistines who ruled over Israel at that time. You say, whoa, back up. Yahweh was at work in Samson's disobedient, disrespectful choice of a pagan wife? how, How can that be? Okay, all right. Remember what I said a few moments ago. The really disturbing thing is that the presence of the Spirit seems to have little to no effect on the moral character of the individual. Nevertheless, when God sees fit, he empowers certain people at certain times to accomplish his plans and purposes in spite of their ignorance or character flaws. That is what's happening right here. 
God is using all this to further his purposes of deliverance for Israel. How so? Okay, remember, I also said that Israel had become complacent towards their Philistine overlords, and they were intermarrying with the Philistines, and they were in danger of losing their identity as the people of God. And Samson, far from leading Israel through his self-disciplined devotion to Yahweh, Samson is doing what everyone else is doing. What's everybody else doing? Whatever's right in their own eyes. And that is literally what Samson says right here. He says, Dad, Mom, get this woman for me. This is literal Hebrew. She is right in my eyes. She is right in my eyes. That's exactly what he says. But Yahweh is going to use this self-willed young man who, as we're going to see, violates not only his Nazarite calling, but lots of other commandments of God, like this one right here. But God is going to use all this to stir up serious conflict between the complacent, complicit Israelites and their Philistine masters. Yahweh is using Samson's selfishness and foolishness to advance his agenda. And as odd as that might seem, this is the way that he will begin to deliver Israel from the hands of the Philistines. He is, God is creating an opportunity to work against the Philistines. He works in mysterious ways, wouldn't you agree? But it, you know, it's not unlike Judas, right, who betrayed Jesus. Judas made a free choice to betray Jesus. He was not a pre-programmed robot who had no say in the matter. Judas made free choices. But our sovereign God used those evil choices to accomplish his predetermined plan of redemption for us. You see that? And here, God is using Samson to accomplish his purposes in spite of his sinful, selfish desires. You see how, how all this fits? I'm not saying you like it, but you see how it fits. Or think of it this way. If Yahweh used Israel's pagan, idolatrous enemies to discipline his own rebellious people, then, then maybe it's not so strange that he also used a self-willed, disobedient, foolish man like Samson as a starting point for delivering his self-willed, disobedient people from their enemies. Follow me? Verse five, as Samson and his parents were going down to Timnah, a young lion suddenly attacked Samson near the vineyards of Timnah. At that moment, he ripped the lion's jaws apart with his bare hands. He did it as easily as if it were a young goat, which we all know how easy it is to rip a young goat apart. <laughs> I mean, that's just easy peasy, lemon squeezy, like uh, no problem here. Take that goat, rip it apart, but a lion, my goodness. But he didn't tell his father and mother about it. Now, by the way, here's something really interesting. This is a seal, and it was found in an archaeological dig in Tel Beth Shemesh. Remember? Uh, meaning the house of the sun god. Shemesh is the derivative from which Samson's name comes. He was named after the sun god, Canaanite sun god. And this seal shows a man fighting a lion, so the man is there on the left, trying to make all that make sense. And this seal is from the 11th century BC. So the seal comes from the exact time and place that we just read about right here. 
It doesn't say Samson, but it is very, very interesting to me that uh, his renown went far and wide, possibly revealed in this seal. Verse seven, when Samson arrived in Timnah, he talked with the woman and was very pleased with her. Now, later when he returned to Timnah for the wedding, he turned off the path to look at the carcass of the lion. He's not supposed to go near dead things. And he found that a swarm of bees had made uh, some honey in the carcass. So he scooped up some of the honey and, and he ate, ate it along the way. He, he not, he, I don't even have to say he shouldn't have done that, but I just did. He also gave some to his father and mother and they ate it, but he didn't tell them that he had taken the honey out of a dead lion. So now he's defiled them and made them unclean. Of course, he doesn't care. He breaks his Nazarite rule of not touching a dead animal. Worse, he eats honey out of the dead lion's carcass, and then he gives some honey to his mom and dad, and he doesn't tell them where the honey came from. Again, what does this show us? It shows us that Samson is doing what is right in his own eyes. Verse 10, After, or as his father was making final arrangements for the marriage, Samson threw a big party in Timnah, as was the custom for elite, upper-class young men. And when the bride parents saw him, they noticed he didn't have anybody with him, so they selected 30 young men from the town to be his companions. You watching the movie? All right, by the way, this wasn't just a, you know, like a Saturday wedding ceremony followed by a Sunday reception at a country club somewhere in the area, and then the couple went off to a honeymoon. This was a different kind of deal altogether. I mean, back then, the celebration would actually be a week long, a seven-day celebration where everybody would party together, and there was definitely alcohol all over the place here, and so it's hard for me to believe that he didn't partake. But this is a party where everybody would come together and they would all celebrate with the, with the bride and groom, that kind of thing. Verse 12, Samson said to his 30 handpicked for him Philistine groomsmen, which makes you wonder, why didn't he have family friends with him? But anyway, he says, let me tell you a riddle. If you solve my riddle during these seven days of celebration, I'll give you 30 fine linen robes and 30 sets of festive clothing. But if you can't solve it, then you gotta give me 30 fine linen robes and 30 sets of festive clothing. All right, they said, we'll take that bet. Let's hear your riddle. So he says, out of the eater came something to eat, out of the strong came something sweet. Now, there is no way they're gonna be able to solve this riddle. I mean, this is a dirty trick. I mean, how could they know about a, a dead lion carcass with a hive of honeybees inside of it? Samson is the only one who knows about the lion and, that he killed with his bare hands. So he's really cheating them out of 30 new Brooks Brothers suits and 30 festive Tommy Bahama Hawaiian print shirts. I mean, it's crazy. Verse 14, it's, he's cheating them. This isn't a riddle that just anybody can solve. He, they could not have possibly figured this out. So they, three days later, they're still trying to figure it out. And on the fourth day, they said to Samson's wife, you need to get your husband to explain this riddle for, uh, for us or we will burn down your father's house with you in it. Whoa. Did you invite us to the party just to make us poor? So Samson's wife came to him in tears and said, you don't love me, you hate me. You've given my people a riddle and, and you haven't told me the answer. And he said, I haven't even told my mother and father the answer, why should I tell you? Marriage is off to a great start. So she cried whenever she was with him and she kept it up 
for the rest of the celebration. At last, on the seventh day, he told her the answer because she was tormenting him with her nagging. I'll make no comment about that. (laughs) Then she explained the riddle to the young men. So before sunset of the seventh day, the men of the town came to Samson and said, "We we got the answer. What is sweeter than honey and what is stronger than a lion? And Samson said, if you had not plowed with my heifer, you wouldn't have solved my riddle. (laughs) If you hadn't plowed with my heifer, you wouldn't have solved my riddle. Now, okay, stop, let me just explain this. You know, there are times when we run across something in the Bible uh, that comes across very offensive to us, but when we dig into it, we find that back in Old Testament times in that culture, that people back then, they wouldn't have heard it the way we hear it today. This is not one of those times. (laughs) Yeah, it was just as offensive back then to call your wife a heifer as it would be today. (laughs) Do not put this scripture verse into practice. (laughs) Marriage off to a great start. All right, verse 19, here we go, here we go. Then the Spirit of the Lord came powerfully upon him. He went down to the town of Ashkelon, some 20 miles away, and he killed, shall we say murdered? Yes, we shall. He murdered 30 men, took their belongings, gave their clothing to the men who had solved the riddle, but Samson was furious about what had happened, and he went back home to live with his father and mother, so his wife was given in marriage to the man who had been Samson's best man at the wedding. Crazy story. Crazy story. And it's interesting, this part of Samson's story begins at home and it ends back at home and that's where we're gonna leave him today, sulking at home. All right, so after this incredible fanfare surrounding his birth, after the Spirit of the Lord starts stirring in him, what's the first thing that we see Samson do? Does he use his great, great strength against the Philistines? No. What does he use it for? Is it for the glory of God? No. Is it to try to lead the Israelites out from underneath Philistine oppression, the oppression that the Israelites have lived under for 40 years? No. He uses the power of the Spirit of God to pay off a debt by killing 30 Philistines and giving their clothes to 30 other Philistines because Samson was caught trying to give his Philistine groomsmen a riddle that they would never be able to solve. He's trying to cheat them, and they cheated him. He lost, he got ticked, he stormed off and murders 30 men, strips them bare, takes their bloodstained clothes back to the marriage feast, which was still going on, throws them down in the banquet hall, then he leaves in a huff, goes back home to sulk, leaving his new wife behind. Good guy or bad guy? Bad guy, really bad guy. Now, what he did do, as strange as it all is, what he did do was stir up conflict between the Israelites and the Philistines, and not just the ones at the wedding party, but with the Philistines 30 mi- 20 miles away in Ashkelon, one of the five major capital cities of Philistia, cities along the coast. Now think about that. Could, it, could that be why the Spirit of the Lord came upon him and he went so far away? I mean, now he's got a reputation far and wide 
for being a hot-headed Hebrew with a vindictive streak a mile long. And this was just the beginning. Oh, there's oh so much more to come. In fact, this is the first of six occasions of vindictive personal retaliation Samson will inflict on the Philistines that will throw a monkey wrench into the people's apathetic perspective about living under Philistine rule. You see that? The Lord is working. He is creating an opportunity to work against the Philistines. Oh yeah, so much more to come. Now what do you make of this? What's the point of all this? What's, what, what lesson are we supposed to take away from this part of Samson's story? And to answer that, I need to take you up 30,000 feet and show you something that the author of the book of Judges assumes you know, but you may not know. You see, the book of Judges is much more than ancient Bible history. It is ancient Bible history with a theological twist, with a theological purpose. In the Hebrew scriptures called the Tanakh, the book of Judges is included in a section of the Tanakh called the former prophets, which are Joshua, Judges, Samuel, and Kings. So Joshua, I mean, Judges is a prophetic book, a prophetic book. Okay, so in what sense is this dark book prophecy? In the sense that the author, probably Samuel, is writing to teach future generations of Israelites about who Yahweh is and what Yahweh is really like. He's showing them how Yahweh worked in the past to give them a unique identity as his very own specially chosen people. He's showing them how God disciplined them when they turned from him and how he delivered them from their sin and bondage even when they didn't deserve it and even when they didn't want to be delivered. So the author of Judges looks back on the 300 year time span during the days of Judges and he selects certain stories like the stories we've, we've looked at, Othniel and Ehud and Barak and Deborah and Gideon and Jephthah and Samson and he arranges these stories so that we see this repeated cycle of sin and discipline and distress and grace and deliverance and peace. Why, why is he doing this? To help us see how God refused to give up on his rebellious people, the people that he loved. He refused to give up on them even when they gave up on him. The author of Judges is showing future generations of Israelites and us, and us, how great and good and gracious Yahweh really is in the hope that they will respond to Yahweh's grace by giving him the worship that he rightfully deserves. Okay, so what is he specifically showing us in the Samson story? Hold on. You ready for this? Two things. First, he's showing us that Samson's story is Israel's story. Samson's story is Israel's story. The best commentary I know on the books of Judges and Ruth is by uh, a, a man named Dan Block, who I had the privilege of sitting under and having him teach on the book of Judges back in 2007 at my postdoctoral retreat up in Wisconsin. And Dan Block says that Samson embodies and personifies all that is wrong with Israel. He writes, and I'm paraphrasing him, him a bit, like Israel, 
Samson was specially chosen by the will of God from birth. Like Israel, Samson was called to live a holy life of separation and devotion to Yahweh. Like Israel, Samson refused to live out who God called him to be. Like Israel, Samson was inescapably drawn to foreign women. Like Israel was drawn to foreign gods, and they played the harlot. Like Israel, Samson experienced the bondage and oppression of the enemy. Like Israel, Samson cries out to Yahweh in his oppression. From his oppression, like Israel, Samson is blinded. Like Israel, Samson is abandoned by Yahweh, and he doesn't even know it. And like Israel, Samson did what was right in his own eyes. You see it. Samson's story is Israel's story. Samson is the living, breathing embodiment of Israel. Because it's kind of hard for us to get our mind around what doing what is right in your own eyes looks like when you're, when you're talking about a whole nation of people. I mean, when we read, again, Israel did what was evil in the sight of the Lord and they worshiped foreign gods, it, it's hard to see that part of the movie in your mind because we don't have reference points. We don't have a context for that. It's hard to know what that means, but it's not hard to see it in Samson, in his personal life. We can look at Samson and we go, oh man, that is really horrible stuff there. And we're gonna see it more on a national level in a couple of weeks when we get to chapter 17 to 21. Samson's story is dark, just like Israel's story is very dark during the days of the judges. <laughs> but it's against this dark background of sin and selfishness and violence and immorality that God places the diamond of his grace. Even though Israel is in a dark place of almost becoming extinct, God is at work. He is graciously breaking into the darkness, preparing his agent of deliverance through Samson's miraculous birth announcement and then in using Samson despite his callous and corrupt nature. In all of this, God is showing us that he will not let Israel die. He will not let anything or anyone prevent his great plan of redemption from coming to pass. Israel may be doing everything in his power to destroy itself from within, but God will preserve his people. The glory of his name is at stake and his redemptive mission of grace is at stake. Oh yeah, Samson's story is Israel's story. And that means, and this is my second point, that means Samson is not the hero of this story, God is. Samson is in no way, shape, or form the hero of the story, God is. Samson is a part of the dark background on which God places the diamond of his grace. That's the only way he, Samson ends up in Hebrews 11. It's simply by grace. The whole story is about God taking the initiative to save Israel from self-destruction, even when they don't even acknowledge they need to be saved, and that's grace. Again, I wanna go back to something that I said a few weeks ago, something Tim Keller said about the whole message of the Bible, but I wanna apply it specifically to Judges, since Judges is in the, in the Bible. I put it this way, the message of the book of Judges is that God persistently and continuously gives his grace to people who don't ask for it, who don't deserve it, and who don't even fully appreciate it after they receive it. I'm telling you, that, that, that statement is something we need to really think about. This is who God really is. He persistently and continuously pours out his grace to people 
who don't ask for it, who don't deserve it, that's grace, who don't deserve it and who don't fully appreciate it when they get it. That's who God really is. And we would do well to meditate on that good news. In Judges, purely by his grace, God is working to rescue his unfaithful, disobedient people and he's using unfaithful, disobedient Samson to begin his rescue operation. Like I said earlier, Israel's deliverance would eventually come through King David. But guess what? After David, the downward spiral kicks in again and the rest of the Old Testament, the rest of the Old Testament is the same cycle of sin and discipline or judgment and distress or exile and grace and deliverance and sometimes peace until the whole thing starts over again. Israel never learns the lesson. So judges in the history of Israel show us that all earthly deliverers will eventually become part of the ongoing sin problem that we have. So God, in his grace, sent Messiah Jesus with an angelic birth announcement, with a miraculous birth, blessed by his heavenly father in his growing up years, filled and guided by his spirit in his earthly life and ministry. And by the power of his spirit, he delivers his people from oppression who are held in the bondage of the devil. He gives his life to deliver us from our sins on the cross. He's miraculously raised from the dead and now rules at God's right hand in heaven. And, and, and he's promised to come back and set up the kingdom of heaven on earth where he will once and for all set right all that's wrong in this world and he will reign on the throne of his father David forever. Jesus is the lamb of God who was slain from the creation of the world and in the days of judges, God was working to preserve Israel as it waited for the day when Messiah Jesus would come. Listen, God didn't invent salvation as an afterthought or a backup plan. He intended it from before the foundation of the world. He always intended for Jesus to be the light of the world, the diamond of his grace set against the black background of sin and death and hell. How many of you remember uh, MacGyver TV show? Yeah, yeah, okay, so here's the 85 MacGyver and uh, here's the 2016 MacGyver. Now, if you remember the show, you know that MacGyver was famous for his crazy, insane ability to improvise weapons and traps and escape plots, pretty much using duct tape, a Swiss Army knife, a pack of chewing gum, and a paperclip. And with those everyday, mundane resources, he could accomplish just about anything. Listen, God is not an improviser like MacGyver. No, he had a plan from the beginning and never has had to MacGyver his way out of anything. He, he certainly was not up in heaven wringing his hands because Samson turned out the way that he did. No, he is sovereign and he is in control. He is working all things after the counsel of his will. He works all things together for the good of those who have been called according to his purposes. And the God who worked in the days of Judges and the God who worked through the life and death and resurrection of Jesus is the same God who's working in our world today. He's the same God who's working in your life and my life today. 
and he's working in the very same way that he did in the dark days of Judges. Now, yes, okay, today he is working through his church, through people who are called according to his purposes, people who are committed to him and his way of life in this world, people who are committed to Jesus' disciple-making mission of advancing the good news of the gospel in the world today. But, but, but at the same time, he's working through the most unlikely, unholy, unrepentant people you can imagine. He is our sovereign God, and he's working in the good and the bad. He is working through good people and bad people. He is working to save and deliver and rescue people who don't believe in him, who care nothing about him, who reject him, who thumb their nose at him, and who are hell-bent on upending his good purposes in the world. And he's work, he works in times of peace and in times of war. He works in prosperity and in poverty. He works in success and failure. He works in joy and in suffering. I know, I hear you, I hear you. It's so loud in here. Why doesn't he just fix all these bad things? The pain, the suffering, the violence, the war, the evil, the immorality. Why didn't he just stop it all? Because that's not the way he's working right now. Right now, he's working to bring all of human history to the end that he's planned from the beginning. Right now, he's giving this rebellious world over to its own lusts and godless desires. Just like in the days of Judges, sin and rebellion have brought God's discipline, God's judgment on this world. Right now, Romans 1.18 says that God's judgment is revealed from heaven against all ungodly ungodliness and the wickedness of people who suppress the truth through their wickedness. And their wickedness, our wickedness, wickedness, human wickedness is the cause of most of the pain and suffering and violence and war in this world. But the good news is a day of peace and shalom is coming. And right now, Judge Jesus Deliverer, Savior, Jesus is the way, the truth, and the life that can carry you through the corruption that's in this world by lust. Right now, Jesus will carry you in, carry you through the brokenness of this world into his coming kingdom if you turn to him in repentance and faith. Look, every time you turn on the news and you see wars and rumors of war, when you see rising gas prices and inflation due to the due to, to corrupt world leaders doing what is right in their own eyes but caring very little about what's right in God's eyes or even what's right in the eyes of the people that they are supposed to be serving. Remember this, behind everything that's happening in this broken world, behind all the bad stuff happening in this world, stands a God who is directing history towards the time when his kingdom will come and his will will be done on earth as it is in heaven. Hey. Remember, God is using it all to bring about his good purposes in the world. And so how should we respond? We should fall on our knees and worship him with all our heart and soul and mind and body and strength. How should we respond? We give ourselves to doing what is right in his eyes. He put his own spirit in us where, where we can do that. Give yourself to Jesus' disciple-making mission in this world. Let him be the hero of your story. And you'll never be disappointed. Hear me. No matter how dark the events of your life may be, no matter how messed up your life may seem, 
no matter if you're the main cause of all the mess in your life, on that dark background, your heavenly father lays the diamond of his grace. You just have to have eyes to see it. And as odd as it seems, Samson's story helps us see it. Father God, thank you so much for your word. Thank you so much that you, in a story like this, it, you, you actually reveal how good and great and how gracious and glorious you really are. Let this picture that we've seen this morning destroy every distorted image of God that we talked about last week. Let what we see of you right here compel us, motivate us, convict us, encourage us, inspire us to be about Jesus' disciple-making mission in the world. May this picture of God so shape our lives that we put Jesus on display and that you would draw people to yourself through Jesus through what they see in your church today, through us today, through Fellowship Greenville today. And I ask these things in Jesus' name, amen.